Welcome back to the third season of the U.S. Naval History Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Dalton. And today's episode is a continuation of the background surrounding the United States Navy and China, which is absolutely essential to understanding the Pacific world today. And with me to discuss the Spanish-American War, the Philippine insurgency, and the Boxer Rebellion in a China context is Professor David Silvey, who is a senior lecturer at Cornell, where he teaches courses on defense policy and military history, and has also conveniently written a book each on the Philippine War and the Boxer Rebellion, among others, which I'll link to in the show notes. Welcome, David. Thanks, Chase. It's great to be here, and I appreciate the links, and, and so does my daughter's college fund. <laughs> well, um, absolutely. So so let's start with the, the Philippine War, and you know, through a, a string of strategic considerations shared by the, the public and the elites in the post-Civil War era. The United States was now an industrial powerhouse and economic power, and, and we had, you know, our population was becoming more urban than rural, and we were felt that we were destined to become a great power. And of course, thanks to Mahan's, the influence of sea power upon history, everyone knew that to be a great nation, you need to have a great navy. So we, so we leave the army to, to flounder as it should be, um, and, and build up a big, big modern navy. But we, the U.S., have a, a problem at this point that we are a two-coast nation, and Mahan says to keep your fleet together. So you'd have to keep the fleet on the East Coast and be vulnerable on the West Coast, or keep it on the West Coast and be vulnerable on the East Coast, because we can't possibly afford this extremely expensive world-class fleet twice. Um, and it takes months to sail the fleet around the world. And even assuming that you could coal these ships along the way, because lots of other great powers would be interested in taking a chunk out of the U.S., and denying the U.S. fleet a coaling stop in one of their colonies would be an easy way to do that. So that means that you need a, a shortcut between the East and West Coast. And, uh, you know, looking around, uh, uh, P- Panama. Okay, great. But this means that we need to also control the East and West Coast approaches to Panama. And, you know, Mexico, not, not, not a particular problem after the Mexican-American War. But the Caribbean could be. Okay, so now we have to control the Caribbean. Uh, and who's weak and controls a lot of the Caribbean and also happens to have a lot of bad press at the moment? Well, the Spanish, of course. And so... The explosion of the battleship slash heavy cruiser Maine provides the spark for the nation to go to war. But we don't really strike at Cuba first. We first go to the Philippines. Why, why, why are we doing that? <laughs> I know. It, it seems a little bit odd to uh, that a war that is about control of the Caribbean uh, really sort of uh, has a major theater uh, almost nine to 10,000 miles away in the in the Philippines. Um, and I think to, to highlight one of the things that you uh, talked about is we sometimes forget how how we didn't really control the Western Hemisphere for quite a long time. We're so used to today the U- United States being the dominant power. Um, in the entire Western Hemisphere. We're not worried about Canada. We're not worried about Mexico or Peru or anyone. But through most of the 19th century, the U.S. was um, was not um, the most powerful nation uh, in the Caribbean. It was Britain or Spain. Um, we even had trouble with South American countries uh, like Chile. Um, and so one of the things that happens, as, as you note, is the first thing the United States has to do is control its own neighborhood, is control mm-hmm. its own, control the Caribbean. Um, and the main power at that point is Spain, is very much Spain. Um, and so uh, one of the things that happens is that the U.S. and Spain are 
sort of circling each other warily uh, in the 1880s and 1890s as the U.S. Um, uh, the U.S. builds up its fleet. But the other thing to think about, and, and here we come to the Philippines, is the United States wasn't just thinking about being a power in the local in our local area in the Western Hemisphere, but but thinking about being a global power um, and being an imperial power. And the main area that we focused on at that point was the Pacific, um, specifically the Western Pacific uh, around China, around Japan, and in that area. Um, and one of the main avatars, one of the main spokespeople for this was a gentleman who's very familiar uh, in American history, which is uh, Theodore Roosevelt, um, who was Assistant Secretary of the Navy uh, at this point um, in 1898. And as the U.S. and Spain started to uh, sort of come close to war uh, after the explosion of the Maine in Havana Harbor, Roosevelt saw this as an opportunity to establish U.S. power, uh, not just in the Caribbean, but also in the Pacific. Um, and so he actually reached out, unbeknownst to the actual secretary of the Navy, a gentleman by the name of John Long, he reached out to the commander of the U.S. Asiatic Fleet, um, which was then in Hong Kong, uh, a gentleman by the name of George Dewey, and he ordered Admiral Dewey that if we went to war with Spain, Dewey's first mission was to sail over to the Philippines, sail into Manila Bay, and attack the Spanish there. Um, and so it is, in many ways, it's sort of a fascinating uh, conjunction because the United States is not only sort of um, establishing its authority in the Western Hemisphere, but it's also stepping out onto a global stage by asserting its power across the Pacific um, in the Philippines. Um, the the, the and sort it's, of little it's somewhat unintentional because President McKinley has no idea this is going on, right? <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't, and even worse. So when the war starts, Roosevelt waits uh, for a day that John Long, the Secretary of the Navy, is actually out sick. So he's absent, Long is absent from the office, and Roosevelt sends the order to Dewey to go attack Manila Bay. And when Long comes back, he sort of says, uh, wait, we never <laughs> talked about this. But Long was kind of, uh, he was old, he was kind of tired. And so he sort of just decided, well, now that you've already done it, I'll let it stand. So um, sort of a, a plausible deniability play. It's like, yeah. You know, was it something that he wanted to do and just sort of did not have the uh, the Teddy Roosevelt vigor to execute? I, you know, I don't think he'd really thought about it. I long wasn't a very much of a of a naval person, um, and he didn't have the sort of really manifest destiny uh, sense that that Roosevelt did. Um, but worse than all, all of this is uh, is that Roosevelt not only didn't tell Long, but they didn't tell McKinley. Um, so, as you noted, McKinley's sort of shocked when the U.S. fleet goes into action. And this in is just Phil unimaginable in a day of instant communications from the White House and the National Security Council controlling oh, yeah, know, a lot of yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> I mean, granular decision-making. 
if the navy suddenly invaded australia without telling the uh, without telling the president about it it would be uh, it would be a catastrophe um mckinley has to has to find the philippines on the globe the the globe of the earth that's in the oval office at that point cuz he just doesn't know where it is um, so it's this sort of accidental imperialism, not accidental because Roosevelt was was very much planning it, but it was just this sort of bizarre sideshow to what the main issue was, which is fighting over Cuba. So why does why does Roosevelt and you know presumably some some portion of the uh, American establishment care about the Philippines or or really? You know, anywhere in the Pacific, right? We we have California. I guess we would want yeah. to protect that, but beyond that, yeah, it was. It's a good question, and for a large part of the American policymaking elite, um, the world was seen in very zero sum imperialist ways. Um, that this was a global competition between powers and and to be competitive you had to have a strong navy you had to have uh, a large uh, empire um, or you had to have access to large markets to sell your goods and so the real prize in the pacific was not the philippines it was china Um, the u.s had been attempting to gain access to the chinese markets uh, for a long time, the, the current Secretary of State, a gentleman by the name of John Hay, argued for what he called the open door policy, which was a way to get access for Amer- American manufacturing. Um, and in many ways, the Pacific is sort of a continuation of westward expansion for a lot of Americans. This is this is manifest destiny, uh, expanding across the American West now that the frontier has closed um, we're going to keep going across the Pacific. Um, and it's notable that at this point, the U.S. didn't just uh, take the Philippines, but it took Hawaii. Uh, it's going to take Guam as part of the process. And the prize here is not necessarily the islands themselves uh, of any sort. It's the deep water ports. So it's Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. Um, it's uh, the the deepwater port at Guam, and then it's the deepwater port uh, at Manila, because those will serve as naval bases and allow America to assert its power uh, aimed towards China. It's, as you noted, it's a sort of very Mahanian view of how the world works. Right. And to have a, the only way you can guarantee that your Navy has the freedom to operate in wartime is to own the ports. Correct, and you know a lesson that uh, the Russians are going to learn the hard way during uh, <laughs> you know in a couple of years coming up, but um, yep. during the uh, the Russo-Japanese War, yep, as they attempt to sail their their beleaguered fleet from uh, from Europe all the way to Asia, and it gets pretty beat up in the in the process. But um, absolutely, and we're so we're so used to the Navy being able to refuel at sea these days um, and not relies heavily on port that we forget how he- dependent. Uh, naval ships were on coal and the ability to get into a port and resupply themselves with coal. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It's fundamentally critical to a navy to have a network of bases around the world. So okay, so so we care about the Philippines because we want to you know get to China, get get those those markets during the open door policy. Um, and so Dewey gets this order from 
from Teddy Roosevelt go and attack the Philippines, and he does go and do so, right? And he attacks uh, Manila Bay. But that, that was a, a relatively risky attack from a, I guess, from a logistical perspective, right? Yeah, he, uh, you know, because he didn't have the ability to resupply. So if he lost, if he didn't succeed in in capturing Manila, he was going to be really in trouble um, in terms of being able to refuel uh, and resupply his ships. Uh, a couple of British naval officers who watched uh, Dewey sail out of Hong Kong Harbor sort of really thought that that was the last time they were going to see him, that they were going to get wiped out um, by this. <laughs> by so, Spanish? Oh, yeah. Um, it's, it, 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 it was seen as a fairly big risk at that point. Huh. I mean, you know, history obviously does not um, play out that way because the, the Spanish uh, were, well, well, I would say that Dewey's marksmanship was not particularly good in the fleet. The Spanish <laughs> were, were astoundingly bad. Yeah. And so they get, um, they, they get wiped out, but there's not a, a particularly good plan as to what to do next. Right. And, and it goes back to, you know, Roosevelt sort of freelancing uh, in this case, which is Dewey successfully wipes out the Spanish fleet uh, in Manila Bay and then sort of radios home that that he's in control and McKinley has no idea what to do with this. I mean, he doesn't have any sense uh, and any any strategic plan uh, for this because he he wasn't expecting this to happen. Um, And McKinley sort of sort of uh, goes around and around trying to figure out what to do with it. And, and at one point he thinks about just taking Manila Bay uh, alone, not taking the rest of the Philippines, um, uh, just taking that deep water uh, port. But eventually he decides that as, as part of the peace treaty with, that they're going to negotiate with um, Spain, that he's actually going to buy the Philippines um, from the Spanish uh, and take the entire... Um, archipelago, but it's it's sort of we acquire the Philippines sort of in a in a fit of absence of mind, um, which is one of the ways the British <laughs> used to describe how they got their empire. It's it's not part of this giant master plan by McKinley. It's sort of very ad hoc, one opportunistic little seizure at a time. Exactly. And so, just for for anyone listening, if you want to know a lot more details about the actual fighting and, and whatnot of the Spanish American War. And go back and listen in episode seven, and we're going to skip over a lot of the, the fighting and sort of skip forward to you know where we we buy the Philippines for twenty million dollars, as mentioned, and you know sort of not what the Filipinos were hoping for, but you know probably what they expected. <laughs> um, and and, and there, but there's a, a lull in the in the fighting right before the Battle of Manila occurs, in which you know we the Americans absolutely annihilate the Filipino army, but it was. On paper, at least, you would not necessarily have expected that, or at least I would not have. It's it's fascinating, and it's a little for, it's a little remembered battle. the The largest conventional battle the U.S. fought between uh, land battle fought between the Civil War and World War One was actually the Battle of Manila um, on February fourth and fifth, eighteen ninety nine. And yet we don't we don't really think about it. Um, and you're absolutely right. Is the it, we sort of have this sense that American soldiers are um, dominant in conventional battle. But interestingly, the Filipino Army of the Republic, as they called it, had better 
individual weapons and U.S. soldiers um, had more experience uh, than the U.S. soldiers who were fighting. And on paper, at least, it seemed like a remarkably even competition. But what it turned out during the battle was that the U.S. forces absolutely wiped the floor with the Filipinos, that this was not less of a uh, evenly balanced contest and more of a, a sort of slaughter, um, in some cases literally a slaughter. Um, and the U.S. Uh, uh, Army um, just completely routed uh, the Filipinos. Um, there's a, there's a number of reasons why um, they did this. Um, one is that the Filipinos had very little actual training with those individual weapons. They were short of ammunition. They didn't have a lot of chance to train and practice with their weapons. And so they were horrendously, horrendously inaccurate um, uh, when they fired at, at attacking Americans. Um, but also, and, and this is an interesting sort of thing, is Filipino culture was very dependent on what's called the patron-client relationship, where people owed their loyalty and service to rich um, landowners. Um, and that in a, was... In a quasi-feudal sense? Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. It, it very much resembles a sort of evolved feudalism. Um, and so the way the Filipinos had built their army was based off of these relationships. The landowners became officers, the, or the, the what we might think of as peasants became, <clears throat> excuse me, became uh, soldiers. But part of the loyalty, part of the responsibility of those soldiers was not to die for their patron. They weren't expected to do that. And so when it seemed like they were at risk of life and limb, they made what I think is a very sensible decision to get the heck out of there um, and let let the other guy die for his right. country, so to speak. Um, yeah, and, and so to, it, to it sort of collapsed. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. It, it sort of, uh, the army, the Philippine army collapses when it gets hit by American hammer blows. And it's a, it's a complete, a complete route. And so the difference is essentially a patron-esque system as opposed mm -hmm. to the professional U.S. army. Yeah. And, and, Two things. It's it's interesting to note the the American soldiers actually weren't the professional long service soldiers that we think about. They were largely volunteers. Um, and in fact, oddly, a lot of them had expected to end up fighting in Cuba um, when they volunteered, but instead um, uh, ended up in the Philippines. What what differentiated the American soldiers was that there was this very strong sense of patriotism that was driven by national pride, driven by a sense of masculinity and manhood that made them willing to fight and die for their country much more aggressively um, than the Filipinos. Interesting. And so, you know, the U.S. Army is still being led by at least a NCO or perhaps officer corps of, of Civil War era leaders and they, they do these civil war era charges um yep. which are still happening yep. essentially in world war one against the, the filipinos instead of getting absolutely mowed down yeah. um as the, as they probably expected honestly um they uh the filipinos retreat and the battle of manila is won and at this point the filipino american war becomes a semi-insurgent style war um and the army does does decently though because they, they spent the past couple decades fighting back and forth with the indians in the west right yep. Yep. Yeah. And it's it's a very conscious decision on the part of the Filipino leader, Emilio Aguinaldo, 
to shift to insurgent warfare. He realized that the Filipinos couldn't uh, manage conventional battles against the Americans. And so he decided to shift to this uh, guerrilla style of war. But the problem for Aguinaldo was that the Americans immediately recognized what this was. They had spent the last 30 years fighting Native Americans in the American West. And so they were all deeply experienced at the kind of counterinsurgency uh, techniques uh, that this new kind of warfare. They even adopted a lot of the language around uh, the American West to talk about the Filipinos. They called Filipino insurgents braves. They called Filipino women squaws. Um, and, you know, you note the racism of that, but also it's a, it's a good image of how the Americans were viewing that, that this is this what we the, were doing. This was the parallel at hand. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. And this is sort of exactly, oh, I know what we're doing now um, mm. uh, sense on the uh, part of the Americans. By the way, I love the one of the great uh, parts of what you mentioned about Civil War veterans is not all of the Civil War veterans in the U.S. Army were actually veterans of the Union Army. Um, there were a number <laughs> of Confederate veterans who had actually rejoined. And one of them, a, a guy named Joseph Wheeler, Fighting Joe Wheeler, um, uh, had actually risen back to the rank of general uh, by the time the, the Filipino War started. And his men, after they after one attack on the Filipinos, his men came to him uh, and said, you know, sir, uh, General Wheeler, sir, uh, we appreciate you're leading us up the hill in that attack, but you were you were screaming at us that we got to go get them Yankees, boys. <laughs> Uh, and we're fighting the Filipinos, sir. And he's like, oh, sorry, I won't do it again. Um, so sometimes the memories were rather yeah. less uh, far back than you might think. A, a, a semi-reformed uh, Confederate. Uh, <laughs> exactly general. right. Exactly right. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and, and so in the end, you, you get some, you get a, a pretty heavy hitting cast of characters in, in the Philippines that would later play a, a role in U.S. history. You get Douglas MacArthur's dad, Arthur MacArthur. Um, yep. As sort of the head of the the military aspect of the Philippines, and then you get uh, you know future President Taft as the yep. civilian guy, and they, um, they they butt heads over priorities and whatnot. And then uh, you know, of course, in a, a beautiful bit of um, historical uh, symbolism or, or, or symmetry, I guess it is Douglas MacArthur who abandons the Philippines, and then sort of dictates parts of U.S. strategy during the during the second half of the. Pacific War to to return as a savior of the Philippines at the end. So talk about um, some symbolism and, and perhaps nepotism there. Yep, absolutely. It's and it's it's a really fascinating disjuncture because Arthur MacArthur, uh, Douglas's dad, is the general who essentially won the counterinsurgency against the Filipinos, and yet. It was done in a way that was as much about winning hearts and minds as it was about violence and slaughter, although there was a lot of that as well. And so coming out of the insurgency, the Americans and the Filipinos were able to reconcile much more than you might think to the point that Arthur MacArthur's son, Douglas MacArthur, becomes, as you, as you noted, this avatar uh, for the mm -hmm. Filipinos. You know, you think about um, whether the, how the Vietnamese would feel about William Westmoreland's son showing up 
um, to uh, to Vietnam or us uh, if uh, Osama bin Laden's son showed up mm-hmm. um, uh, for something like that. It's a very interesting shift. Yeah, most definitely. And so, um, so so I guess you know one thing I, I wanted to ask you about because I I have read a number of allusions to it, but there doesn't seem to have been a good book or anything published on it. Is is the role of the Brownwater Navy in mm. Uh, the Philippine War, and I, you know, I, I would read these sources, and they'd be like, "Oh yeah, the Navy was cutting off aid from the outside and cutting the islands off from each other because the Philippines is obviously, you know, a couple hundred little islands." But, but, um, can you shed some more light on that? Because I, I was always tried to find out more, and I could not. It's a critically neglected the 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 role of the Brownwater Navy is is really massive a massive gap uh, in our historical understanding. Uh, of the the Philippine American War, because um, you're right, the book doesn't really exist uh, in a detailed way. But right from the beginning, um, especially after after George Dewey left and went home, the Navy and the Army started working together to develop um, strong naval capabilities, uh, both to patrol and maneuver in the areas between the islands but also to uh, sail on the rivers uh, that crisscross uh, the Philippines and, and bring uh, firepower, uh, firepower there. And it's an absolutely fundamental part uh, of the war and the way the U.S. was able to win it because what the Brownwater Navy was able to do was turn a national insurgency into a collection of local insurgencies. Each island was cut off from the other, and that meant that the insurgents could not mutually reinforce each other, help each other out, um, get supplies. Um, instead, they were sort of isolated and left um, left on their own. Um, so the brown that Brownwater Navy, um, just I think uh, very much like the Riverine Navy in in Vietnam was absolutely critical in the waging uh the waging of the conflict and it's a it's a messy collection of ships that the u.s has sort of sent over uh acquired from the spanish uh picked up in the pacific Uh, we don't remember any of their names um they were they weren't the giant battleships um or the fast destroyers they were sort of little river boats um, or inter-island steamers um, with cannons and machine guns on them, but they did remarkable work uh, in uh, preventing the insurgency from spreading uh, or interacting with itself. And did that also help um, exploit those ethnic divisions uh, between you know the islands? You've got the Catholics and you've got the Muslims, and then you've got a couple different you know, minority ethnic groups within there that, that didn't, and, you know, you mentioned tribal-based, right, tribal-based society, and they didn't uh, necessarily get along, right, and and, um, yep. and eventually we, we did adopt, you know, somewhat of a, the, the British strategy in India where you pick a uh, pick a group and, and uh, be like, hey, you want to be in charge? <laughs> yep. Yeah, it, it, the, because the, the Brownwater Navy was able to turn this conflict into uh, a set of local uh, conflicts. What the the army could do was focus on the particular cultures, the particular groups and communities living on each island, 
and target those folks in specific ways, try to convince those folks to come over um, to the American side. The, the dominant ethnic group in the Philippines, the Tagalogs, uh, were not particularly well-liked um, by a lot of other ethnic groups. And so they were sort of fertile ground for the U.S. Um, to try and uh, try and recruit them. Now, sometimes that led to sort of horrific uh, events, uh, like on the island of Samar, uh, the U.S. cut off the population because of an a ambush, a successful ambush that killed a lot of American soldiers and really inf uh, inflicted a lot of atrocities um, on that population. Uh, but for the most part, uh, the, the U.S. was able to use sort of very specific it measures of influence um, on the uh, on the local folks um, and convince them either to, either to join with the U.S. Um, or to at least not resist. Um, you know, the, the one of the sort of consequences of this is that some of those local conflicts went on for much longer than we think. So, the Moros in southern in the southern Philippines, who were predominantly Muslim actually kept fighting for much longer uh, than the rest of the insurgents. Um, we think of the, the Philippine-American Wars ending in 1902, and it largely did, but the Moros kept fighting uh, until really until 1913, um, which was a remarkably long time. Interesting. And so, you know, time goes on. Eventually we uh, capture Aguinaldo, and at this point, insurgency more or less starts to trickle off, right? Is that... Is that accurate or we're not? We're not. It 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 does it. You know, one of the challenges of thinking about uh, uh, insurgency or a counterinsurgency is when do you know you've won? Because what you're really trying to do is so it's when you hang the, the uh, mission accomplished banner, right? <laughs> I you went there. You went there. I didn't go there. Uh, but no, you're right. Absolutely is. Um, is what you're trying to do with a counterinsurgency is reduce the level of violence down below what we consider an actual conflict. There's no great surrender ceremony on the battleship Missouri's back deck. There's no moment when everybody gives up. It just gets to the point where the insurgents can't really contest the counterinsurgents' control of um, uh, of the of the community. And so after uh, after uh, Aguinaldo gets captured, um, and actually uh, is convinced to switch over to the American side, um, and put out a plea to the insurgents, the rest of the insurgents, to stop fighting, um, the the sort of level of violence in the islands just starts sort of trickling downward, until by you know mid 1902, Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, who's now president. You know, in four years, he's gone from assistant secretary of the Navy to uh, to president. Uh, Roosevelt is able to um, declare the war is over um, on July 4th, 1902, um, a date he picked uh, very specifically because uh, it was Independence Day. It did have a whiff of the mission accomplished uh, approach, but it was also fairly plausible. So I guess that sort of brings us to... Um second half of what I wanted to talk about. And the Spanish-American War takes place over the course of a couple of months in 1898, but then the insurgency goes on until TR declares mission accomplished five years later or so. But the, during this time, we have the Boxer Rebellion, which is happening in China. And 
before we sort of get into that, we, the United States, had an interest in China due to the uh, open door policy. Can you expand on that a little bit? What was that? Um, the open door policy was uh, a proposal that the U.S. put forward to the other imperial powers. And it was essentially, and, and I mentioned Secretary of State John Hay was the leading proponent of it. It was the idea that rather than splitting China up among the great powers, uh, as, as so many other countries had been, that everybody would be given access to the Chinese markets, um, that nobody would control China, but instead China would be opened up. There would be an open door for manufacturers and folks like that to sell their goods. Um, and you can see the obvious parallels with today, um, mm -hmm. the idea that we're going to sell enormous amounts of goods to the 1 billion plus people living in China um, has, has been this sort of holy grail uh, of American corporations, um, hell, since I was a child. So um, it's been a very long time indeed. And, and it sort of started back um, in the late 19th century with, uh, with McKinley's government. Okay. So the Philippines is a door to get in there into the Chinese market. And we, we've done this. The Spanish-American War ends. Uh, the guerrilla war is still ongoing when in 1899, the Boxer Rebellion kicks off in China, which is essentially just an uprising by the local peasantry, so to speak, in, uh, in North China. And they're mad about Christianity and foreign influence. And, but it's not, it's not that unique in the sense that like a lot of other parts of the colonial world throughout history, you get these occasionally just absolutely huge rebellions propelled by, sounds bad to say this, but, but essentially by magical belief that the local gods will protect the righteous repellers of Western technology. And you get this again and again. You get it with the, the Sioux during the Indian Wars and the, the Mahdi's in Africa against the British, which is just like a decade earlier. And, and then you see it with the boxers and they think the local gods will protect them from Western bullets and it uh, presumably does not end well. Is that is that a... Uh, <laughs> a short conclusion. The bo the Boxer Rebellion is one of those things that you, you come across as a historian, and it's this sort of wait, what happened? A kind of reaction to it. And in fact, it's, it's interesting. I finished the book on the Philippines that you had mentioned, and I was thinking about my next project. And what I noticed was in the middle of this counterinsurgency conflict that the U.S. had actually had to bundle up troops um, in the Philippines and send them off to China because there was this crazy rebellion um, going on in China where local Chinese who were resentful over Western influence, over Chinese, uh, over Christian missionary uh, missionaries coming in and converting uh, um, Chinese to Christianity had sort of risen up in revolt um, against both the Chinese authorities and also attacking any foreigners they could. Now, as you as you noted, there's this fascinating sort of almost mystical uh, cult associated with it, um, a secret society uh, whose name roughly translates as. Um, fists united in harmony or fists righteous in anger, but quickly came to be known as the, as the boxers. Um, and they had this set of beliefs that, that if they, if the members, if, if the boxers uh, were able to uh, practice their martial arts rituals 
correctly that they would then become physically invulnerable, um, that they would, as you said, as you noted, they wouldn't be hit by the bullets, they would be protected against them. And so this sort of cult swept across northern China in the late, in late 1899 and early 1900 and really began to attack thousands of foreigners, foreign missionaries, foreign diplomatic personnel, and turn it into a full-scale uh, full scale global crisis. Now, there's two interesting things about this. One is that the hardest thing to convince someone to do is mount an attack on a defended position. You, right. you know, you think about the difficulty level of getting up out of a nice, safe foxhole mm -hmm. and charging an enemy uh, mm -hmm. uh, position. And there's all sorts of ways to do it. But one of the ways to do it is to convince the people doing it that they're going to be physically invulnerable to it. So there's actually a little bit more tactical sensibility to this idea than we might think. If you think of it as a way to successfully mount a frontal assault uh, on a defended position, um, you know, the U.S. Marines are, are sort of famous um, for disdaining anything but frontal assaults. What's the, what's the old phrase? Uh, hey, diddle, diddle, straight up the middle. <laughs> right, right. Um, um, so, you know, you sort of understand that, that difficulty level. So the boxers weren't quite as crazy um, as you might imagine. But the, the second thing to think about is this was not a movement that had a centralized leadership. This was ordinary Chinese resentful in their day-to-day -day lives. Um, they saw a model of how to fight back and they sort of imitated it. And so there isn't really any overall leader of this uh, rising, of uh, this rebellion, um, enough that it's not only the Western powers that are experiencing real trouble with this, it's the Chinese dynasty, the, the Chinese government, who can't control these ordinary peasants and is in many ways as much a victim uh, of the situation as the foreigners who are getting attacked. The Qing dynasty had a, I guess, an on and off relationship with that, you know, sort of a plausible deniability, I guess would be the, the term. Right. Uh, with, yep. with them? At, 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 yeah, early on, the the uh, the head of the dynasty, uh, the Dowager Empress, uh, Dowager Empress Cixi, Cixi, had had sort of tried to fight back against the boxers. But when she saw them having some success against the foreign um, uh, missionaries and engineers and diplomatic personnel, she, as you said, she sort of threw her um, allegiance uh, over to them and started using the the army. Uh, to um, support them. It was very much a, a sort of alliance of convenience. Um, and there's there's fairly good evidence that the Chinese soldiers were not all that enthusiastic about it. Uh, among other things, I found evidence of at least one situation where the Chinese soldiers decided to test to see how physically invulnerable the boxers were by shooting them. Uh, and it turned out, uh, as you might have guessed, very badly indeed for the boxers. Mm. Um, so as you, it's sort of this alliance of convenience, but by the middle of the summer of 1900, the entirety of North China is in this 
state of ferment. Um, there are boxers in walking the streets in Beijing. They're attacking um, the foreign embassies, the foreign legations uh, in in Beijing. And the Western powers have very little idea what to do. They don't have a lot of ground forces um, in China. And so it's sort of this shock to the system where they try to figure out how do we respond to this. This is when the United States gets pulled into it um, to try and do something because they're one of the few powers with forces that are close enough to intervene quickly. But we're, we are one of, I guess, traditionally the eight-nation alliance of... Yeah, and it's, it's, it's sort of the eight great imperial powers... And there's sort of the old traditional imperial powers, Britain, France, uh, Italy, uh, even Austria, Hungary, and then the sort of new boys on the block, the new guys on the block. It's the United States, it's Japan, it's Germany. And so even though they're allied with each other and are fighting the boxers, um, they are also looking at each other very warily to sort of jockey for advantage um, and see who's gonna who's gonna play well. Um, interestingly, the the countries that get along the best uh, among the countries that get along the best, the U.S. and the Japanese um, are very friendly, um, uh, which is sort of an odd thing to think about when you realize uh, the, the later history in in World War II. Um, but there is this sense of rivalry among all of these powers to see who's going to emerge as the most effective, the most dominant, um, however you want to phrase it. And ultimately to ensure that because the Chinese market is so huge and so valuable that, uh, mm-hmm. that nobody nobody corners it, so to speak, right? You got to right. keep that open. Um, okay, and so, so the boxers, they commit sort of the standard rebellion atrocities, and, and then they have the standard... Uh, anti-rebellion atrocities committed against them. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, a pretty large Marine Corps contingent. And did that did that contingent come from the Philippines or was that a, a separate contingent sent straight from the United States? That, the, the, so the Marine Corps contingent that, that was in Beijing was actually uh, part of the Asiatic fleet, so they were they were there near in China um, already um, before the uh, the uprising started. They were sent up to Beijing to help protect the American embassy personnel um, and ended up trapped up there uh, during the uh, what came to be known as the siege of the legations when the boxers and the Chinese army surrounded um, the embassy area in in Beijing and tried to attack um, them. So the Marines uh, who were there had, had were already present. Um, the other Marines who were um, uh, in what was called the relief expedition uh, actually came from both uh, Japan and from the United States, um, so they weren't they weren't in the Philippines. The it was mostly army units that came from the Philippines to help fight the conflict. Okay, and so battle goes on. Um, the boxers end up getting defeated, um, and the Chinese state ends up uh, on the hook for you know what would today be the equivalent of many 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 billions of dollars of reparations for lives lost and buildings burned and whatnot uh, in the the compounds. And China suffers through 
in, in the next of a series of unequal treaties. Is that is, is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, and and it the once the eight uh, nation alliance had had conquered Beijing, they discovered that there was no one among the boxers to negotiate with, and so the only person they could negotiate was the Dowager Empress. Um, and the the treaties that they imposed on her were extremely draconian, both in terms of monetary penalties, in terms of access to uh, the Chinese markets, uh, in terms of allowing Western powers to garrison um, various areas uh, of northern China so that this wouldn't happen again. And what this really did was sort of confirm China's second-rate status, second-rank status, that they were no longer um, a a global power, but instead were having this um, uh, inferiority imposed on them. It's one of those memories that the Chinese still have to this day, this sense of resentment that they were treated, in their perception, so unfairly uh, by the Western powers. And so it feeds into a lot of, especially Chinese cultural reaction mm-hmm. to the current uh, current world, because they see themselves, uh, in many ways, rightly, as a nation that's been victimized for centuries at this point. Sort of the, the cap, or I guess not the capstone, but a, a midpoint to the century of humiliation starting, I guess you could call it roughly uh, after the Opium Wars in which the British humbled them. They uh, Japanese beat them in the Sino-Japanese uh, War, and then the Western powers come in and, and carve up China. And then, you know, thirty years later, the Japanese are going to come in again and and uh, you know wreak havoc, um, ultimately leading to yep. the current ba- you know the the conclusion of the Chinese Civil War and the current um, CCP leadership of the country. Um, yep. And, and you were saying that that very much influences the way that. Um, the Chinese people and the leadership see the the world today? Yeah. The century from about 1835 to probably about 1949 is an unbelievably disastrous one for the Chinese, both in terms of um, having um, imperial powers come in and impose a whole range of different things on them, but also uh, the kind of domestic chaos that the Boxer Rebellion was just one example of. You mentioned the Chinese Civil War, which is several decades of really horrendous uh, internal fighting. Um, The Boxer Rebellion, which we've been talking about, even before that, something called the Taiping Rebellion um, was this giant uh, uprising uh, in the 1850s that really came very close to completely shattering um, China itself. So when the Chinese communists take control in 1949, they are coming out of a, a culture and a country that really has undergone unbelievable levels of violence um, and chaos over the last century. And they're very determined that whatever they do, they are going to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you think about what's going on now with the South China Sea and with the Chinese very aggressive imposition of their control on it. Um, it really does come out of that sense of secure, needing security, needing to protect themselves. And in many ways echoes what we talked about at the very beginning of this, which is 
the United States cementing its control on the Western Hemisphere and the Caribbean because it felt that same sense of vulnerability. The Chinese, in, in many ways, are doing the same thing now with the South China Sea. They're they're locking down their front doorstep. Um, uh, I'm not sure you can actually lock down a, a doorstep, but so that metaphor may not work particularly well. But they're they're locking their front door because they that's the way people have gotten to them over the last century, and they're determined that it doesn't happen again. Yeah, that that, that makes a um, a lot of sense, and everyone sees, uh, or you know, at least we see ourselves as uh, as certainly the the benign upholders of of the international order, and and you know, we we do not. Uh, expect ourselves to go and act in a you know such an irresponsible manner but from the the chinese perspective it's well the, the british at the same time thought that they were upholding the uh the principles of free trade when they were you know slinging opium right. um right. to balance the uh right. to c- correct the balance of payments um from the tea and and similarly the sort of all the great powers when they were intervening in the boxer rebellion were, were simply restoring order in china and you know and, and look where that led right <laughs> Yep, absolutely. No, and it's 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 a really critical point that uh, every imperial power sees itself as the sort of neutral arbiter uh, of the rules of the game, the international law, um, and we we very much um, saw that uh, ourselves um, uh, during the during that period. But also now, I mean, you know, I think uh, we coming back around to the U.S. Navy, the way in which we are imposing um, or doing freedom of operation. Freedom of navigation operations. Uh, freedom of navigation, thank you, um, in China, uh, in the South China Sea, to uphold international law, for us seems to be a perfectly reasonable and neutral upholding of... Uh, how the world works, but from the Chinese, it's perceived in that context I mentioned of Western aggression. Um, now, you know, China is no longer that second-rate country anymore that is still sort of suffering um, from uh, having those kind of uh, uh, those kind of treaties imposed in, upon. In it. a flip, they are memor- exerting a similar level of. Uh coercion, I, I would say, on, on a number of smaller countries throughout the world in turn. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and you think, yes, exactly. The Philippines, um, Vietnam, uh, even in, as far as Africa and Central Asia with the, the Silk Road initiative. But the memories last a very long time. You know, Faulkner uh, said that uh, history isn't dead, it's not even past. <laughs> Um, and he was talking about the Civil War, the American Civil War, the way in which it is still a live cultural moment for Americans. Well, the century of humiliation is still very much a live cultural moment for the Chinese, and they still have a very strong sense that they're vulnerable, that everybody's waiting to come get them, and that they have to push back uh, against that as hard as possible. And they could point to, right, you know, with I don't necessarily agree, but but I think that uh, you, know, you you could at least argue that you know look China is still a poor country in the sense that our per capita income is is much lower than Europe or the United States, and you are you know you the the United States Europe Japan are trying to take actions against us so that we do not become as rich as you. Um, 
because yep. that would be scary yep. to you. And, and, and we're like, yeah, you're right. It would yep. be scary to us, right? Because you, 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 know, you, you have shown some, uh, some tendencies when, when you are not, you know, when you are only merely as powerful as you are to be uh, quite coercive towards weaker countries. And if you suddenly had the per capita GDP of, say, the United States or even just France or something like that, you would undoubtedly be the most right. powerful country in the world. And, uh, right. you know, right. I, I think that uh, every reasonable policymaker in the world that is not Chinese does not particularly want to live under that um, that prospect of the world. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely correct. And and it's, you know, it's incredibly sort of complicated situation because there's also the issue where the Communist Party of China is worried about its level of control over the Chinese population. Um, and so they're at least partly invoking that memory of the centuries of humiliation as a way of distracting the Chinese from thinking about uh, their lack of freedom, uh, their uh, living in an authoritarian uh, um, nation. Um, and so there's domestic po uh, political issues mm -hmm. Uh, going on there as well. But, you know, to, to give another example, um, how much when when certain elements in, in the American political world started talking about COVID as the Chinese virus and talking about conspiracy theories that it was deliberately released or accidentally released from a bio lab in Wuhan, how much that language played into this cultural memory of being victimized um, by the West. Um, the one other thing I would add is that unlike the United States, China is has to be a land power as well as a naval power. We have no major rivals in the Western Hemisphere with us anymore. We don't have to keep a massive army at home to protect our territory. China, on the other hand, borders on two of its greatest rivals, Russia and India, um, and so they have to be very worried about um, that land threat uh, as well as I've actually been thinking about that States. that recently. Um, yeah, go ahead. And, and you know, one, you know, I think that the Ukraine war sort of exposed the the myth of the the mighty Russian military, where if uh, the distinctly yeah. third rate yep. military, fourth rate military power of uh, of Ukraine, albeit with a lot of Western assistance, could give the you know, vaunted Russian military this much problem. I don't think that, uh, I don't think that the Russian military currently at least, um, poses any threat to, uh, the Chinese and certainly not in the, I'd say foreseeable future, but ever truly. Um, and, and then right. India, you know, right. while they, the board, the border they share is very small and the border is not, you know, a big open plane that, you know, <laughs> that, you know, sort of a, the, the Polish German Germanic plane where panzers can roll in it. It is a, right. You know, very right. high altitude, rugged um, Himalayan plateau that is not conducive right. to to massing hundreds of thousands of troops in a conventional land war. And so, previously during the Cold War, China and Russia were very much eyeing each other over a you know very long border with troops on the ready and scared of each other. Quite frankly, um, you know, there's some mutual yep. fear. But but now, given the the steady decline of of Russia's relative position in the world and the relative rise of China's and then additionally Russia's dependence on China in many ways. Um, I think that that has freed the Chinese to think in a much more you know, eastward uh, fashion, you know, in their case, in a Pacific manner, mm. because 
You know, I, I don't right. think that there's a true scenario in which the in, in which they get into a multi-million man, you know, sort of conflagration with as they would have with the Soviet Union, and, and just the, the border can't support. Right. Logistically, it's it's very hard to support a mass land campaign against India given their right. geography, and right. you, know, you have Vietnam, but uh, you know, and the Vietnamese have traditionally been the, <laughs> a thorn in the sides of the Chinese, but <laughs> but again, right, it's it's yep. Vietnam. Yeah, no, and that's I think that's a fair point. I think the the one thing to add to that I would add to that is the problem is that what Ukraine has done is shown not only the Russians to be a paper tiger, but it's also made the Chinese very nervous about how good their own army would mm-hmm. be. You know that that if the Russians are shown to be this ineffective, how well will the Chinese be? How well will the PLA the the um, uh, the Chinese army, um, how well will it be able to fight? And is it, is it similarly a hollow, a hollow force? Now, whether those are rational fears or not, I don't know, because the, the PLA hasn't fought recently. Um, but as you, as you sort of uh, alluded to, the, the, Viet, uh, the uh, Sino-Vietnamese War of 1979 did not show uh, the PLA in great, uh, in great light. So I think I think the Chinese I think you're right to think the Chinese are less worried about a land war than they were during the Cold War. I don't think we can we can discount it completely. Mm-hmm. And 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 sort of to, to go on from there, one of the interesting things that that's I've been watching with the Chinese is the way that they're beginning to understand that it's not just about building weapons and enlisting soldiers and arming them. You have to build experience and capacity to use the weapons effectively the, the command structures and the logistics and the maintenance regimes to support exactly all this. exactly right and just the the level of understanding the the recent naval exercise the chinese held out in the philippine mm-hmm. sea um, where they took a carrier strike group out and spent two weeks doing uh, doing landings and takeoffs is a clear example of them trying to develop the kind of ability to use their new aircraft carriers. You know, you think about what American aircraft carriers spend all their time doing. It's practicing those sorties so that they can actually carry out the kind of missions that they're designed for. Chinese don't have that capacity and that understanding. They've got the aircraft carriers, but they don't have the people who know how to use them all that effectively? And you could, you could, and draw I think they're starting like a, a little bit of a parallel to World War II, where the Japanese, you know, had, you know, their carriers, but they were unbelievably proficient at them. And that's why they mopped the floor with the U.S. Navy during the, you know, yep. opening, uh, yep. you know, six months or so of the war, um, as opposed to the, yep, absolutely you know, the U.S. Right. Navy. You know, we we had a, a large carrier force ourselves, but uh, uh, we were not as well trained in our. Uh, you know, exposed a lot of tactical deficiencies during those first few engagements uh, that, that had to be yeah. hard work. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. And the specific thing I would point to there is the Japanese had started using multi-carrier groups. So they were, you know, Kido Bute, the Japanese striking force that attacked Pearl Harbor, was six carriers carrying over 400 airplanes. Um, that's a massive striking force. And they had worked together to make it effective and powerful. The U.S. was still using single carrier uh, groups and only started putting carriers together when they were forced to by the Japanese. So it's a it's a absolutely uh, critical point that you just made. So I'm going to save uh, any future talk of World War II because I do have uh, Ian Toll coming on to talk about <laughs> World War II. Um, 
uh, next on the next episode. So uh, listeners, stay stay tuned for that. I just wanted to ask you uh, one last question because uh, this has been floating on my mind since I've been thinking about about modern China, which is, and we we talked about it a little bit, which is the to be shaking the confidence of the um, CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, and yeah, um, you know, not only in their military, and in, in the most likely you know conflagration is to an invasion of Taiwan, right? And lots of people have drawn parallels between a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan and how well that might or might not go in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But um, yep. the level of public support, I I'd previously, you know, I've updated some mental models that I had where previously I assumed that, you know, the, the record of economic success that the CCP had uh, been able to show their people guaranteed them a fairly deep bench of public support, um, you know, even in the face of a temporary hardship, aka the, you know, possible large-scale war and certainly a very intense sanction regime that would come out of a Taiwan invasion. But the yep. the pretty widespread unhappiness and protest, which seems to have shifted some CCP thinking um, post-COVID or, you know, during during the waning days of COVID, yep. you know, leads me to have update some models that I was, you know, some mental models of the Chinese public. Um, and more importantly, the how the Communist Party might think of their level of support from the public in the face of adversity, because, you know, there's some parallels between the, the level of adversity that the average person faces, you know, during these lockdowns, which are damaging for the Chinese economy and restrictive of personal freedoms and, and the, a potential sanction regime, which would be the absolute minimum response, a, a very restrictive sanction regime on China, should they invade Taiwan, which would yep. materially degrade the average Chinese citizens standard of living material things that they could get, probably the level of information that they could get, and the societal restrictions that the Communist Party would put on the average Chinese citizen would be, you know, non-trivial during this this period. And um, and I'm wondering if you think that that has impacted the Communist Party's perception of their citizens' willingness to put up with a a war. I think you've identified the key issue for the Chinese, that central bargain that they made of uh, giving economic prosperity in return for continued control by the Communist Party and, and economic prosperity for really the, the coastal populations, the, the urban populations in the large cities was what has sort of cemented um, the the authority of the the Communist Party and COVID, I think, really put a knock on that because the the zero COVID policy that the Chinese have been following had massive, massive economic impact, both at the at the national level, but also right down at the individual level, where people can't leave their apartments for weeks at a time, they can't earn money, they can't get food, and so. The, that sort of uprising that we saw is sort of a fascinating example of how what I think fills the nightmare scenario for the Communist Party, which is that the public starts coming out and really protesting at a level that the authorities can't keep control under. And it's amazing how quickly the uh, Xi Jinping uh, caved to the protesters' demands and and just completely eliminated the zero, uh, the zero COVID policy. 
the the other thing to highlight, uh, and I'll and I'll come around to Taiwan in a minute, but the other thing to highlight is China's facing a demographic cliff um, because of the one-child policy back in the '70s and '80s. The Chinese population is actually aging very, very quickly, um, and like the United States, but to a much greater degree, the Chinese are facing a future where a lot of older folks are. Um, retired folks are supported by a reduced number of workers, which is also going to have an impact on those workers' economic prosperity. So I think the Communist Party is also terrified by that, um, by that issue uh, as well. And then finally, where Taiwan fits into all of this, first off, as, as you know, I'm sure very well, uh, amphibious landings against a defended coastline are the single most difficult military operation to carry out it ungodly uh, challenging, and so it's enormous. Would be enormously difficult for the Chinese to invade Taiwan, and I don't think it would uh, resolve quickly. Which means that if there are sanctions, if the Chinese are involved in a in a slugging match, not only with Taiwan but with the United States, there is going to be very serious economic impacts on the Chinese population. Whether they're willing to support that is is not clear. Um, I'll note the despite what's going on with Russia and the sanctions, the Russian population has remained pretty resolutely in support of, of mm-hmm. Putin, not without some um, uh, pushback, but not in a way that that has really threatened Putin's authority. So there's sort of a mixed. That is true. Uh, a mixed, um, I would say, a mixed sense of of yes, it would be very hard for the Chinese not to worry about a sort of domestic protest, but at the same time, the Russians have remained relatively resolute. And, so and shown that that uh, I'm doing that. T- you know, the proper propaganda arm can whip up a, a nationalist fervor with um, surprising effectiveness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm not to invoke. Oh, invoke the European theater in in World War II, so I'm not stepping on Ian Toll's <laughs> uh, feet. Um, but uh, the, the the theory behind strategic bombing in World War II in in Europe was always that the the domestic population was going to rise up and force the government to make peace. And instead, what what they found out was that civilian populations are essentially can be very resolute in fairly horrific situations. And sustain a war effort for much longer than people had thought beforehand. I mean, yeah, and, and that that happened in you know all theaters that got bombed from Britain to um, Germany to Japan to an even greater extent. And yep, um, yep. And yeah, you know, a uh, whole, whole other discussion on on the um, on the you know strategic bombing, which which failed in its original mission of you know did not uh, devastate the people's will to fight, but it certainly was successful in the European theater of operations of diverting you know the, the majority of german war resources away from the eastern front into fighter production and various air defense mm-hmm. which um mm-hmm. lots of historical what ifs but i think that it is uh, unlikely that the eastern counteroffensive would have been a successful counteroffensive had the strategic bombing not happened and thus the germans not been forced to devote right. you know a right. absolutely massive amount of their industrial base to the air sea war right. um Right. Against the the Western Allies, yeah, no, and it highlights something that's been a common theme throughout this throughout our talk today, which is that war is about learning. Um, that 
militaries learn how to fight a lot of times while they're fighting. So the, the people doing the strategic bombing learned what worked. Um, one of those things was pulling the resources away. The other thing I would mention is hitting the choke point economies, the, the ball, ball bearings, bearings yeah, exactly. the fuel refinery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. Um, and and so just like the Chinese are doing now with the aircraft carriers, the um, uh, learning how to use them, just as Ukrainians are doing in their war, learning how to fight the Russians, um, there is this element of every war where you have to figure out how to fight even as you're actually fighting. Well, excellent. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to particularly uh, hit on or did we sort of in our wide ranging discussion get most of what you wanted to, you thought was interesting? Yeah, no, that was great. I, uh, I think I got everything and, and I appreciate you, uh, uh, you asking such thoughtful questions and having such thoughtful points yourself. So everyone, uh, thank you, David, for coming and thank you, listener, for tuning in. And, and here we have set up uh, for Japan to join the great powers. It was one of the powers that intervened during the Boxer Rebellion. And World War II is just around the corner in sort of a China context. And I'm going to have Ian Toll on uh, for the next episode to talk about this. And so please uh, tune in. You, you know, I did, again, want to, I did want to say that I'm going to link David's work in the show notes. He has a book on the Boxer Rebellion. He has a book on the Philippines. You have another book on um, the British working class uh, in their response to war. Is that... Is that correct? Yep, yep, absolutely. It's uh, it's why they joined the army during World War One, which uh, yes, was a, a particularly grim prospect. And I, I, you know, it uh, definitely <laughs> takes a uh, yes, a, a combination of perhaps um, nationalism and, and foolhardiness to uh, to join the army uh, during World War One, knowing what you're getting into. You'll ha- you'll have to buy the book exactly. To find uh, out. David's daughter's college fund will thank you. Is that, is that exactly. right? Okay, there you go. <laughs> yep, yep, absolutely. Uh, So if you've not already done so, uh, please uh, go and click on that link and also rate and subscribe this podcast wherever you're listening to it. Write a review if you feel so inclined. And of course, shoot me an email at usnavalhistorypodcast at gmail.com about anything and everything. Until next time, fair winds and following seas.